spoken me. I went to sleep that night without knowing that it would be the last night I ever spent in that bed at my parents' house in London. Meredith, my mum shook me awake. The room was dark, making it obvious it wasn't morning yet, or not time to get up for school anyway. Mum, I mumbled in my half-asleep state, it's time to go. Everything I told you about those stories is true. It's time for you to leave us so you can train to be a protector. Your dad and I, we've done everything we possibly can to prepare you. First Charge is the first book in the Destiny Initiative series by Amanda The book can be purchased in paperback from Amazon. The e-book can also be purchased on Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books and many others. Spoken Have you ever thought about what Santa Claus would be like as a zombie? Or maybe you've wondered how he would cope with climate change, Brexit or any number of issues facing the UK and beyond. Probably not, but if you're now wondering, you can buy The Twelve Deaths of Father Christmas by Amanda Steele. It's a collection of flash fiction stories with accompanying images in which Santa dies in different ways. There's a political slant to many of the pieces and added sarcasm. This is not for children. Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, Spoken label dot bandcamp.com. On the bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you're going to throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running costs of this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken label. Hi guys, Andy Aaron, Spoken Label. Back on Zoom again today. And we're going up to Scotland today. Now, the lady in question, I'll let her introduce herself in a minute. It is worth bearing in mind. She doesn't particularly have a very Falkirk accent. As I actually used to work with someone with a Falkirk. And when she came on a few minutes ago, I thought, no, that's not a Falkirk accent. <laughs> but ah, quite an interesting lady. I'm looking forward to this chat today. So I'll let her introduce herself and we'll take it from there. Over to you, Lisa. Mm. You want to tell everybody who you are? Obviously, tell people where you're to come from. It's not certainly not Falkirk. Or you're traveling, and what led you down the creative path? We'll take it from there. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, so sorry to disappoint you. I don't have a Falkirk accent. I was actually born in Romford, Essex, and I don't oh, have yeah. a Romford accent. I've, I've, got, I've got a goddaughter from Romford, actually, so I don't, I don't know that way. So and she's 21 now. <laughs> I know, last story over there, that right. I'll, I'll tell, tell my friend that later, see if she can spot the accent. So <laughs> anyway, so when, so when did you move away from Romford then? Um, I moved away from Romford when I was 16, moved not very far, I moved up into London and um, spent most of my youth and uh, into my 30s in London. Uh, And then I moved to Canada when I was, um, 1996 I moved to Canada. And then I moved moved back to the UK in 2017 and chose Scotland because it's where my maternal um, side of the family is from 
and always, I'd always loved Scotland, always. Um, so I went to Stirling um, and then wanted a little flat with a garden, which Stirling's a bit pricier than Falkirk, so I ended up in Falkirk. In <laughs> I was very glad about the garden in this, this year of lockdown, I have to say, it saved my bacon on many occasions. Oh, yeah, but I think it's good when we're in lockdown like we are, where you are, it's quite, uh, I've not been to Falkirk. I certainly know it's nowhere near as big as Manchester where I live. So it's an issue a bit more remote than aren't you? So certainly yeah. not at the moment. So now I've read you in your bio before, so we better go back. I want to go back in time a bit first of all. Because obviously when you were down in London Way, I know you worked at one point highway, didn't you? On the BBC and the TVS. And there's also a documentary did. filmmaker. Yeah. Tell people about I... that experience. I'm, I, I was so... an artist. I was well. I, I was very fortunate. I I started in advertising, film production, doing commercials, um, and then I went. Um, I studied theology. I decided to take a BA in theology because I didn't have any qualifications because I'd left school when I was fifteen. Well, I'm done. Then, I left. I left. I left. I left school as well. So it's a it's a good way. It's both good examples. Like you can come back and yeah. be wrong. Can't yeah. You? So, exactly. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. That's okay. <laughs> Um, uh, so I, I applied for a job at the BBC, um, they were advertising for children in need, and I got the job, um, so I was juggling doing a degree and this job at the BBC, and I wrote to Television South with an idea for a documentary um, to a man called Andrew Barr in, uh, in religious programming, and he loved the idea um, of me smuggling myself into Romania, which was under Ceausescu at the time. Uh, made the documentary, trying to finish my degree, and then he said, would you like a contract to work on highway? Because I need someone who can do, you know, smooth the waters um, with a difficult production, um, with Harris Ecom, um, and, you know, like, there were sort of so many different locations that we had to smooth the way on. And my first one was at St. George's Chapel uh, at Windsor Castle. Oh, nice, nice. in <laughs> with the posh people. Girl from Longford, <laughs> posh folk, straight away. <laughs> oh, obviously, like, I've heard a lot of nice stuff said about Harry don't you? So, was oh, it, was he, he was, I've heard it was a pleasure to work with, don't you? People he was such a joy. And I and he was so kind to me because, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if he could tell that I was fairly new to the whole thing, but... He just was so kind to me. And I, I remember um, on the day we, uh, we had, so we had Prince Philip <clears throat> coming in to do the interview. Uh, I always gave, gave Harry, or well, Sir Harry as he was, yeah. the, the card of these are the questions because I did all the research. And then we'd been told we're posh frocks and not to speak to, you know, the, the, the royalty. We were just there to do our jobs. Wow. And the Philip turned to me and says, do I get a cue card, my dear? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. The protocol was like, what was I supposed to do? So I just giggled and said, oh, no, sorry, sir. I don't think you do. Rushed out the room. <laughs> oh, it's a crack, it's a crack in story, that one. <laughs> Oh, it's very silly. Oh no, but <laughs> you, you look back at it, don't you? Thinking, wow, what was happening? How long yeah. did it work? How long did you work in the highway for? So I, I did that for about, um, I guess, four years until TVS lost its franchise. Um, but I worked, so I worked on highway, and I did. Doc- 
documentaries for the human factor. And what I really liked about that was um, telling stories. So it was finding people, finding what their stories were and, and listening to their stories and writing their stories for them so that we could make a, a film about it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, that was that part of my life, which right. was, which was wow. yeah, I feel very blessed to have been, been able to do that. I think in some ways what you're talking about, it links into to a degree, probably was the seed of what led to you writing later on, wasn't it really? Ross, we'll come on yeah. to that in a minute, because I know you obviously after you left working the Highway and been a documentary writer, you went on to a different career. You told me offline before, weren't you? You had a complete different yeah. change of career. So can you tell us about that then? Was that when was that when you moved to Canada then basically? You carried on that work in Canada. Um well it kind of I so it was nineteen ninety-four and I um I went to a prison, to, it was a highway, we went to a prison on the Isle of Wight, and I remember shaking in my boots because I'd never been in a prison before. And I and to be honest with you, I probably didn't have very nice views about people in prison. I didn't really understand it and it was like, you know, just lock him up and throw away the key. And I was, you know, pretty sort of right wing, I guess, about it. A bit of a fascist, really. I hate to think back, like that I was now. Um, but one of the first people I met in prison was an art therapist. Um, and I went in, saw what she was doing and talked to some of the men who were in prison. And I was just blown away. I was blown away by the impact of art therapy, but I was also blown away by their stories and what they'd come from and um, some of the things that they had to deal with. And I'm not saying that what they did to end up in prison is okay, but it, it just put it together for me, you know, that mm, people don't put their hands up in primary school and go, oh, I think I'll go to prison one day. <laughs> you know, it was you like... I think you do because yeah. you learn about that over time, really. We get like the life yeah. experience with it because I've had friends that have done time and some more serious things than others, but bluntly. But yeah, you do it. So I think yeah. you learn about perspectives when something crosses in your, like your personal face, doesn't it? That's what I think probably happened yeah. to you there, didn't it? So was that then you decided that, that caused your career changing after everything changed? For yeah. You? So because I, I did try a bit of freelance filmmaking when TVS lost its franchise, but to be honest with you, I'm not, um, it was very, it was very competitive and I didn't like it. So I went to um, the Institute for Arts and Therapy and Education and I trained as an expressive arts therapist in London. I uh, started up a thing called the Arts Counselling Trust and got funding to run art, music and drama therapy in five of the London prisons. Wow. Um, wow. So that was pretty amazing. Yes, I'm going to respect you there. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then I went, then I met and fell in love with somebody and ended up moving to Canada. So the uh, a shortened version of the longer story, but um, I, then I worked as an art therapist, expressive arts therapist and family support worker in Canada. How did, how did you find the art scene? Time, all the how, time I was writing. Okay. How did you find the art scene in Canada then compared to England then? Because I know Manda and my partners had a, had a publisher in Canada, and I know she yeah. had mixed experiences with her for various reasons. But... Yeah. Well, I lived in British Columbia, and, and there are some amazing, um, amazing artists in Canada and musicians, and um, it is a very, a place that does um, boast a lot of very um, interesting people. A lot of them moved to America because it's easier for them to make a living in, in America, unfortunately. 
Um, but it is also a little bit closed. And I would liken that to England, to London in particular, where if you're not part of that network, then it's very difficult to get noticed or to kind of, I know, be, be part of it. Um, yeah, no, I can, I can get rid of that. I agree with you there. It, I think at one point in Manchester, I think Manhattan, the arts in Manchester was massive. I could have overtook London, but I think things have changed in a minute. So that's best put it bluntly to you. I agree with you on that. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I think you know, Manchester, well, like maybe a bit more like Scotland, uh, it's a much more of an inclusive place. People are welcome, you know, people have welcomed me here. I've joined writing groups and. Oh, wow. um, and I've been I felt really welcomed yeah. cool now we're going to talk today obviously now we've given everybody a good good bit of background about you we're going to talk about your <laughs> about your short story collection aren't we that's coming in September Love Bites and you were yeah. telling me obviously before we got talking today this book actually was wrote over lockdown wasn't it yeah now what made you obviously yeah. start off with this book then well, in, so in March, um, when, when lockdown hit, I, um, one of my positions, um, my, my family mediation position basically just sort of went because I couldn't meet people as a mediator. Um, and I had a couple of mediations online, but I thought this isn't, this isn't going to work very well. I don't, I don't like doing this. And I had been saying to myself for a long time, if only I had time to write all these stories that are rumbling around in my head and they've been rumbling around for a long time um and then I thought well I, now I have the time there's no excuse I can't go anywhere apart from one hour a day live a load out um so I just started writing and it was amazing because the words flowed um and then I met I'd met a woman uh well, about 18 months ago called Mary Turner Thompson who wrote The Bigamist, which is a best-selling book about her life story, basically marrying a man who was a bigamist. Oh, and, I know a story about that. I'll tell you about that. I know, right? Yeah. So, I've, I've just heard the story. It's <laughs> a story. But anyway, come on, I'm not repeating it's, names here. Oh, yeah, so did that prove an influence on you, right, in any of it? Yeah, well, I, I, she, she has an, another business, which is she coaches writers and she does editing and... So I, I sent, I said, Mary, can you just tell me, is this a pile of rubbish or is there any merit in this? And I sent her about five of the stories and she came back and she said, I love them and you should independently publish them. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. So is it, well, there, did you say there was seven in the book, didn't you? Or there's seven, yeah. yeah. So I needed to make a bit more of a word count. So I ended up with seven stories in, in the book. Um, and she was, she was really helpful and she did she guided me through the whole independent publishing world and how to how to do it so that's that's how it all came about really and, I, and yeah I was I was sort of shocked um, and she was also running with two other women I think called the book whisperers and so I was getting a lot of encouragement through that and just as I say I couldn't I couldn't do anything else with my day it, it was a bit like the gardening it saved my it saved my world um it saved my mental health i know being able to pull the story i, I, I think it does i think a lot of us creative people over lockdown we all went about things in different ways like mm -hmm. it was i picked it up from the podcasting i've been this podcast has been there before that 
But because my case, I work full time during the day, and they sent me home in March and diabetic to keep me safe. Mm. And I just said that they podcasting every day, day after day, one project or another, or doing music, and then with loads of writing myself. And it's you do you keep you keep yourself sane in all you can, really. You just can't yourself. You do. Now, yeah, I've yeah. got to ask you as well. Who can who give you the idea of comparing this book of a touch of Bridget Jones's diary with him to Michael <laughs> Christie? Well, that's a heck, that's a heck, of, a, heck of a contrast. <laughs> well, I know. So, British Jones' diary and Agatha Christie. Um, I've been a long-time fan of Agatha Christie, and I've always loved the Bridget Jones <laughs> films. Um, it was my friend, actually, Anne Chatterton. She's in Essex. She's my best and oldest friend. Hmm. We've known her for, well, since I was 19. Uh, so it gives you an idea. <laughs> Oh, just a few years ago, right? <laughs> just a few years. Um, and I, I sent my, I sort of sent one of the first story in the book, um, Polly Brisbane, to her. And she and her husband loved it. And then she said, you know, it's a bit like an older version of Jones. And so it just stuck with me. And I thought it was kind of a nice description. It was a bit of a compliment too. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a fantastic idea. Now, how have you found publicising the book at the moment over lockdown? So it came out in September or no? And obviously, we're still in lockdown at the moment, aren't we? And the way it's looking, it probably will be to next spring, probably by now. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, I'm, I'm on anybody's bringing books out in the middle of lockdown. You just traditional approaches trying to market it have changed, haven't they? So, yeah, and I think that's where I'm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of struggling a bit because I'm trying to find my way through. How do I market my book? How do I get my voice, my book heard on on the big? you know, the big platforms and compete with all the other books that came out because what happened, um, the publishing fairs didn't happen in March. So all the publishers brought out books within about a week of my book coming out. So I think my book launched and then 600 other books came on the market. It's just typical. That it's typical. That really. mm. You're just trying to like, oh, great. <laughs> That's how you're trying to be sarcastic. No, I get you completely with that, so. Yeah, I think it's just one way you've just got to try and keep, keep digging, pushing along, haven't you? And look for the yeah. opportunities sometimes. And like I said, the, mm-hmm. the good thing is I found this. Um, prior to lockdown, I used to, used to run like an open mic night, extra open mic nights near where I was born in Stratford. Mandra helps me run it, and our friend Steve does. And we've gone on to Zoom now to do them all on Zoom. And there's so many literature nights cropping up in Zoom and stuff. It's like that seems to be very, very popular. So, but again, it's just trying to find the right way to get the right one for yourself sometimes, I think. Now, I've yeah. got to ask you as well, and I know you've had two non-fiction works published as well, haven't you? Yes, I have. So before, um, well, kind of while I was training to be an expressive arts therapist and working in the, in the prisons, I had written to Lion Books, which had a publishing arm called the Bible Reading Fellowship. Um, and my proposition to them was a book about men in prison and their spiritual stories because a lot of the men I was working with um, had some quite profound spiritual experiences and um, so I, I did interviews with them as a motivational piece for other people to give other people hope who might be coming into to prison uh, so that was published and then when I was in Canada I got breast cancer. Oh, wow. My children were at the time. So I, um, as a way of healing, really, I wrote about uh, that 
to other mums who had young children because oftentimes breast cancer will come when you're older and later in life but to have little children is quite difficult my my kids were a bit you know quite afraid that mummy was gonna and one one of them said mummy has an owie and I said yeah yeah. And um, so my owie turned into a book. Mummy, mummy had an owie, Aww. and and Aww. I got my older daughter to illustrate it actually, um, and it just gave it away free to the cancer charities and to the hospital to other mums with young children. Of course, yeah. Did you find then, obviously, when you look back at both of these books and you compare it to Love Bites, what you just bought out, have you found that your style of writing has changed much over the years? Do you think, or has it always been? that reasonable same direction? Um, I think it's been, I think it's always been similar. I, I'm a, I have a very uh, conversational style. I'm not, I'm not very formal in my, in my style. Um, so I think when I'm doing, um, when I'm doing the, the non-fiction, you know, I'm talking, I'm trying to talk to the person as if they're in the room with me. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to do that with the writing as I, as I do it. I tell people stories from their heart um, I don't do a lot of big descriptions, so there aren't lots of four pages of, you know, the sea went over this and the turtle swam. I don't do a lot of that. I tend to be fast moving and it tends to be what the person's thinking and feeling at the time. So it's interesting, really, that like you were trying to do short stories and stuff. You're doing two longer pieces and you say you're doing quite fast moving pieces. And short stories are more fun, they're much more snap, snapshots, really. So that, that's something yeah. like a moment. So yeah, that's quite interesting. And then now, last bit, last but one thing we need to cover on today is future projects, because you've got several things on the go. And it's very helpful. It's got read, read about it already. Is there anything <laughs> you want to reveal about these? I'll let you to let you decide what you want to reveal about them to people. Okay, thanks. So um I have got a publisher, but I can't tell you their name uh, for my next book, which is a a young adult fiction. Now, everyone was wondering, my sophisticated interviewing techniques didn't succeed in this one during the preamble before we started recording. <laughs> so, <Sorry>. unfortunately, <laughs> I tried. But <laughs> no, seriously, what's the book about? Just speak for <laughs> It's called My Life's Not Funny. Uh, and it's about a, a girl. She starts off in the book at, at the age of 11 and she ends up at 16 or 15, actually. But her brother is stabbed on a beach with two friends. Um, and she's she grows up with a single mom, alcoholic, um, has seen her mom go through a terribly bad beating by, by her dad. Um, so this little girl gets quite lost in a very dark world in, in the story. Um, and it's she's fictional, but I worked a lot with youth, and there are various aspects of her story of her journey which are based in the truth of other people's stories that have so I've joined them all together. Kevin you're doing um, what we do as a writer don't you where uh, you're doing what you've done there. The, the, I'm not saying it is based on somebody but it's an amalgamation of experiences and something that you've, you've grown up yourself done it so yeah. I think you have to know the character yeah definitely. No, excellent. Good over now. It's, you said it's due to come out next year wasn't it did I hear you said before? It's going to come out in March yeah so March, my life's yeah. not yeah. Now, um, you said the announcement was coming out December as well. This will be the case where the podcast, unfortunately, will probably come out after the announcement. So, anyone look at the right? No, I think I think it'll come out before. Well, it depends 
on when you when this comes yeah. out. But... I think it's been, this will be just for about a week before December, I reckon. So, so it's going to be anyway. We'll see if it comes out when you come out, Lisa. Comes out, Lisa. Get down to Lisa. Let me know, and I can then <laughs> copy it for you. But uh, we can't reveal it today. So now on okay. your on your bio on Amazon, you mentioned there's other works in the pipeline as well. Is there anything you want to reveal about any of these? Well, I'm doing the Rhino Nano at the moment, which is, you know, 50,000 words in November, because I have a novel that I'd started about two years ago, actually, um, called Not Proven. And it's a very dark domestic noir. Um, and I had to put it to one side because the, the male character in it um, and his um, peers are a very nasty group of men. Uh, now, I, I'll just again say that when I was working in Canada, I was working with women who were exiting the sex trade. Um, and I learned a lot about what those women experienced through their stories and through counselling with them. And so, again, I've tied up a lot of factors into this book. But I woke up one morning dreaming about this, this couple. Um, and so they, they've been telling me their story. But it's a, it is a very dark story. So it's taken a long time and it's quite difficult for me to write. So I'm quite glad to be able to try and do a word dump in, in one month and yeah, <laughs> get no. him out of my No, I get, I get it completely sometimes. It's, it's good for a bit of exorcism, like, because I do Napoino every year, National Poetry Night every month, and I will write at least 30 poems a month. And whether they're any mm -hmm. good sometimes is another ball game, isn't it? So, so yeah, but good luck with that. That's all. Keep us informed. Thank you. Now, I know, obviously, you've got your page on Amazon. People can easily find you on Amazon to pick you up Love Bites. Is there anywhere else you want people should go as well to read up on you? Yeah, people can find me at uh, Lisa Miles Writer on Facebook and on Instagram. And I do have a website, which is on Wix. Um, but if, you, if they find me on uh, at Lisa Miles Writer on Facebook, my website is linkable with that page as well. Brilliant. Okie dokie, that's covered all my questions today. So what we're going to do, I'll let you go and take a quick deep breath. And when you go, when you come back to part two, you're going to read out a bit, a bit of one of your pieces for us. So hang around everybody. Yeah. I'm enjoying this lately, so thank you. So we'll see you in a minute, guys. Spoken me. Hi, guys. Okay, straight over to Lisa. She's going to read out one of the pieces, or an extract, one of the pieces for us. Over to you, Lisa. Thank you. So this is an extract from... Um, Fresh compost. Sorry, 1966. He held the firearm steady, pointed at her forehead. The military training had never left him, but he had not expected to be using it like this. She didn't move. Frozen to the spot, not believing he would pull the trigger, she fell straight back as the bullet made a clean entry between her eyes. Quickly, he wrapped the plastic around her head and carried her out of the house and placed her in the prepared grave in her beloved vegetable beds. He covered her with fresh compost. He arranged her face upwards toward the sky. There were foxes and wildlife not adverse to a fresh corpse. And he doubted the police would call about the sound of the motorbikes. Anyway, he had to clean up. Believed Chatham's men were good, that they knew what to do. There would be no reason for the police to look here for the body once they found her burned out car. The codicil would come into play when she was pronounced dead. 
the property held in trust until her death would be inherited by a distant cousin, Stephen Monaghan, architect. Goodbye, my dear. Now you and your precious land can be at one, the way you always wanted. Chatham was staring at him. It was difficult to tell if he was impressed by what he had witnessed or if his impassive face was because he was used to seeing death at such close quarters. They had both had a reason to want her gone from their lives. And now she was. Cologne, 1939. Greta, you must help me. Her mother's face was panic-stricken as the four-year-old Greta sat sulkily on her bed, clutching her brown rabbit, refusing to move. Her mother knew Greta didn't understand why her father had not come home and was upset about being told they were leaving. But they simply had to go. The articles Greta's father had written and published had put them all in danger. Come on, Greta, I've made room for you in the pram. You won't have to walk. I'm not a baby. Yes, but we have a long way to go and... There was a loud knock on the door. Greta's mother stiffened. She placed one of her fingers on her lips, indicated to Greta to be silent. But the knocking continued, and the twins, swaddled in their pram, woke up and started to cry. Ofni de deux! Ofni de deux! the voice repeated, demanding the door be opened. In I'm Nogenblik! Eka's mother removed her outer coat and opened the door. Yeah? Two of the police pushed past her and started their search. The third stood at the door. They didn't speak, and Greta's mother did not dare ask what it was they wanted. She already knew. Thanking her lucky stars, she had had the foresight to burn her husband's notebooks as soon as he was arrested. She just hoped they wouldn't look too closely at the pram and her clothes into which she had hidden crusts of bread and milk in preparation for the almost 400-mile walk to Lucerne. Fantastic. Really, really engaging stuff, that. I've got to ask you as well, you say to you, you had the Scottish accent then, the bits in it, really, really good. <laughs> I don't know where the food was, I've done that, but brilliant, absolutely <laughs> really engaging. So, but no, great stuff. <laughs> Everyone says, certainly, I don't think it's a cracking book, this is what I've read of it, certainly, so themselves to go for it, definitely. I encourage you to buy it. So, Thank, Thank you again, Lisa. It's been a pleasure to be Thank here. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Hang around. I need to speak off mic as I always do the guests. But Miss Sandia, saying thank you again, guys and girls. Stay safe and stay over. I'll see you all soon. Take care. Spoken, mate.